This episode is brought to you in part by Palm Beach Atlantic University's fully online Certificate in Cultural Apologetics program. Learn how to show the reasonableness and desirability of the gospel from leading Christian philosophers. For more information, go to pbaapologetics.com. You know, that says to me that a lot of spaces in our lives are making us feel less than. And if we're just, if we're feeling less than at work, less than in our family, unappreciated, unseen, for whatever reason, politics is a really easy place to work that stuff out. Because here I am talking about the people who make the rules. And if I feel like the rules aren't working for me, being mad at the people who make the rules is, is a good place to put some of that sadness. If you were to look out over the sea of your social media feed, you would likely run away because it feels like everyone is shouting and our political partisanship has made for a weakened social structure, especially in the United States. Well, how do we move forward? In this helpful conversation, I sit down with Beth Silvers. She is one half of the Pant Suit Politics podcast team, along with Sarah Stewart-Holland. And she, Beth, along with Sarah, have written the book, Now What? How to Move Forward When We're Divided About Basically Everything. Enjoy this conversation. It's thoughtful. It's practical. It's hopeful. Listen in. Welcome to the Finding Holy Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Hales, author of A Spacious Life. I love big ideas, but ideas have to move beyond an ivory tower to find their application in the midst of our work and our laundry routines. Here on the Finding Holy podcast, expect conversations about how to live faithfully in a post-Christian world, but without the vitriol, posturing, or shouting across the aisles. During the next three months, during June, July, and August, you can expect episodes to release every other Tuesday. As the seasons change and our schedule changes, I hope it allows you to not miss an episode. So I'll see you back in two weeks. Hello, welcome to the Finding Holy podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Hales, and today I am joined with half of Pantsuit Politics with Beth Silvers. So thank you for being with us, Beth. Thank you for having me, Ashley. I'm delighted to talk with you and your listeners. Thank you. Well, if people have not yet heard of your podcast, Pantsuit Politics, would you just give us a quick little rundown and tell us how it began? Um, what sort of project are you and Sarah working on together that way? I co-host Pantsuit Politics with Sarah Stewart-Holland. Sarah could not be with us today because she and her whole family have COVID and she is really missing being here. I know she is feeling rough right now. Sarah and I went oh. to college together. We weren't super close in college, but we knew each other. And after graduation, we both went off to law school. She went to D.C. and I stayed in Kentucky. She started writing a mommy blog several years later. Her mommy blog was wide ranging. So she would talk about faith and foreign policy and strollers and breastfeeding and all the things in one place. Yep. And I saw it on Facebook and noticed how good she was at promoting it and started following along. And I loved her writing and I felt like I was meeting her for the first time as an adult. You know, I had a vision of hmm. her that was uh, arrested around age 19. So it was really fun right. to get to see her as a mom and as an adult and a community, community member. 
And so when I was on parental leave with my first daughter, I reached out and asked if I could write some for her blog. And she uh, enthusiastically and generously said yes. I did the same with my second daughter. And that at that point, she reached out and asked if I would like to start a podcast. And I did not know what a podcast was when she reached out to me. <laughs> uh, I was working full time, first as a lawyer and then as a chief human resources officer for a law firm. Uh, but we started talking and we realized, she realized that we had good chemistry and she asked if we could just record those conversations and share them and we started doing it. And here we are almost seven years later. If you've not listened to Pantsuit Politics, we started talking because we wanted to have a kind of conversation about politics that we weren't hearing anywhere else. Mm -hmm. One that was mm -hmm. searching instead of pounding at answers, where we were really asking harder questions of ourselves and each other, trying to understand where we we're coming from, and not just understand where we were coming from as though we were just ex excavating like hardened positions that would never change, yeah. but really sort of journey through the news together. And that's what we're still doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and I think, you know, politically, some of your how you would classify yourself has changed right throughout this process as well. So what, you know, what formed your own imagination enough to be able to change? Yeah, even what it's like a political podcast, right? But and here you are at the beginning, right, where you were saying, one of us is on the right, one of us is on the left. And now, you know, there's maybe some more fluidity there. What was it particularly that helped you to be able to evolve in your own thoughts and beliefs, um, and then to do that publicly. I think two things. So when we started the show, we did introduce ourselves as Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. I was a registered Republican, Sarah a Democrat. Um, I think the first thing that enabled me to change my mind, because that's what happened, I became a registered Democrat in 2019 after a mm -hmm. lot of changes both in me and in the world. And in the party, for sure. I think the first thing is that I was born to uh, parents who really loved the news, but were not necessarily very political and certainly not partisan. Uh, my dad was a farmer. My mm -hmm. mom a school teacher. So they had lots of thoughts about policy around agriculture and education. They were committed mm -hmm. to reading the newspaper cover to cover every single day to watching the nightly news. And they taught me that we have an obligation to understand what's going on in the world and to care about it and to participate in, participate in it where we have skills and gifts. Um, but they never hammered mm -hmm. home like we are Democrats or we are Republicans. In fact, for most of my life, my parents were registered mm -hmm. Democrats who mostly voted for Republicans in federal elections. And so I think just mm -hmm. the way that politics was modeled for me as a kid uh, left me without that sort of strong desire to affiliate with a party as much as be a person who cares about the world. And the second thing, just speaking as mm. a podcaster now, is that our audience has been so supportive and generous and thoughtful and often willing to shift in their thoughts uh, that being anything less mm -hmm. than 100% on honest with them has never been on the table for me. But I also knew that for the most part, a lot of people were on the journey that I was on and would come along with me for that journey. And even people who weren't, I just trusted them uh, because of the way that they've trusted us. And so um, I'm really hmm. blessed to be in a, in a public role like this where the shifting is not only uh, tolerated but respected. And so when you look out at the political landscape right now and you look at people of faith and as they kind of bunker themselves often you know, against 
um, other people. How do we begin to talk across these divides of difference? It feels like, you know, since probably since Trump, particularly, it feels like partis- partisanship has increased. Um, you know, is it fear? Is it that we've lost like other forms you talk about in your most recent book about just all of the connections that we actually need at the local level um, to begin to kind of re-knit back some fabric of our society as Americans. So what do you think it is uh, that has really caused this fracturing and how maybe if you have one or two thoughts about how do we actually get back to to re-knitting some of our local communities and commitments so that then, you know, hopefully nationally that will grow. You know, we use the language of across a lot when we're talking about these things. Mm -hmm. And I've started to wonder recently if it's less across and more within, because across Mm -hmm. does really kind of say like, well, I live here and you live way over there Mm -hmm. and there are many things between us. And what we're trying to say in our book is we're all just here together and (laughs) together might mean here in our house together or in this family together, in this workplace together, in this country together, but we are all just here together and we do need to make something work around that because Mm -hmm. just pragmatically, Mm -hmm. I'm probably not leaving and you aren't either. And so what do we want to do? And that's why in the book, we don't start with Uh, where Republicans sit and Democrats sit on matters of national policy. We start with what house were you born in and what did those people teach you about the world Mm -hmm. and who you want to be in it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think as far as tips for starting to re-knit, it is looking much more locally and saying to yourself first, what is the closest relationship where I have felt either, not even politics, right, but like our approach to COVID or our approach to any number of Mm -hmm. issues that don't feel explicitly political, but certainly have political dimensions. What is the closest relationship where I feel that infecting the relationship and what would healing look like? Mm -hmm. And starting with your strengths, right? Instead of just saying, well, let's attack this political issue and maybe I'll convince you that I'm right or or vice versa. Just saying, why why are we in relationship in the first place? What's always really worked for me about this relationship? Mm-hmm. Something has worked or I wouldn't feel sadness or grief that politics have infected it in this difficult way. Um, so I think that's the first thing. Now, that advice doesn't work for everybody. I would never ask someone who's being abused or uh, who is just fundamentally unsafe or whose very identity is being attacked to attempt that level of reconciliation. It's not always possible. And I hope that we're very... Mm-hmm honest about that and humble about the extent to which we can appreciate some of those circumstances in the book. That's one thing. And then the second thing is to take power where we have it. You know, national politics are very demoralizing because it can feel like my vote can't matter that much, uh, especially if you start talking about redistricting and the Supreme Court and all these places where democracy doesn't feel super democratic to many of us. Um, If you Mm -hmm. show up Mm -hmm. in a public school system If you show up in a mayoral election, if you want to run for property value administrator, the people who take that power uh, can do a lot. And a lot of us just don't take that power. Mm -hmm. And so national politics, Mm. it seems to me, becomes a lot more palatable and less depressing when we are having an impact in the spaces that we occupy. 
And I hope that our book offers some suggestions, Mm -hmm. even for people who have no desire to run for office ever, to show up in those local places. Mm -hmm. And even outside of the public sector, you know, your nonprofit work, what you do at your job, like there, there is a, there is work to do for everybody. And it's lots Mm -hmm. of different kinds of work. And I think doing that work is empowering. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed seeing your focus, um, not just on relationship, but also on institutions uh, and that really a lot of our, our institutions have weakened, it seems like, over the last few generations. And so how might, for those of us who, you know, we grow up in America and we kind of drank the American Kool-Aid about you and your bootstraps and, you know, you just need to pull yourself up and you can create your own life, how might we begin to see the value of institutions and then be able to contribute to them in some of the ways you were just talking about? Yeah, look, I mean, I started the show as a Republican, so I got a lot of that in me. Um, And I think that doing the podcast and hearing from people all over the country and world constantly has been a beautiful way to educate me about the fact that somebody made those boots and Mm -hmm. somebody helped you grow into your feet and Mm -hmm. everything exists inside a context. That doesn't mean that we abandon all sense of personal responsibility, which I think is what a lot of people hear when we criticize the bootstraps metaphor. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. It does mean that the context matters, and I think it alleviates a little bit of pressure to just start to ask yourself, like, why did I arrive here? What what experiences shaped me? What has changed in the world since I had those experiences? How can I better start to interrogate what all has worked on me? And when you start to interrogate what all has worked on you, mm-hmm. you start to realize that, wow, like, what happens in a school system, in a church, um, in a nonprofit organization that provides services to your family, that all of those things send you really powerful messages about who you are and how you fit into the world. Um, and that doesn't mean, again, that you don't have any responsibility for what you do with those messages. But it does mean that those messages work on us in ways that we aren't always or even can ever be fully cognizant of, and that's okay. Um, and I think the the other right, beautiful right, right. aspect of thinking about institutions, which you know, have a ton of problems, is that we can develop some patience for each other. I was thinking about this in connection with um, the organizing efforts at Amazon. There was a quote from one of the organizers of the the mm-hmm. location that succeeded in adopting a union. And they were talking about how they went at it as an independent union, like an upstart, instead of joining one of the large labor organizations because they want power without bureaucracy. And while I respect that tremendously, I think that part of what I've learned over the past few years is that bureaucracy is just a way of saying we want to go slow enough to make sure that everybody's on the bus and that everybody's had a chance to be heard on the bus and that we've kind of Mm -hmm. navigated what the greatest good for the bus is. And I really feel like institutions Mm -hmm. are places where we can learn that and work that out um, and that you can kind of see the results of us not Mm -hmm. doing that for a while. Yeah, I was reading something recently, and I don't remember where or what, but, it, you know, there was the idea that, you know, in any good democracy, you need both the kind of let's change things, let's shake things up, the gas pedal, and then you do need the conservative impulse for the brake pedal, right, to say that change has mm-hmm. to happen more slowly or within these sorts of boundary lines so that we can also protect those who, who don't have a voice as well. Yeah, it's true in any workplace, right? I used to do business coaching and I would say to people, you've got to have innovators, you've got to have disruptors, you've got to have people who are there to really preserve the status quo. 
Um, and if you don't have people speaking up for sort of institutional history, something important is missed in the conversation. And I just think that's the difficult piece of any kind of political messaging. Everything is presented to us as citizens in a fighting posture. Who's going to win this election? Who's going to win this vote? And that fighting posture doesn't leave any space to say, wow, there's real room for all these different voices. And it's not that someone wins and loses. It's that even if you are on a side that disagreed with this outcome, you could have influenced the outcome pretty significantly um, in ways Mm -hmm. that make it better for everyone. Mm -hmm. What sort of metaphors would you suggest or vocabulary or terminology that we might use when we talk about politics? If it's not fighting or, you know, warlike language, which we can easily default to. Yeah, I hope it's more like a dinner table. You know, something has to be served at that dinner table. But what's nice about it is, you know, you're going to eat again. I think that we're struggling politically with the Mm -hmm. sense that every bill is the last bill that will ever be passed on the topic. Every election is the most important election we've ever had in our lifetimes. Yeah. And in some ways, every election is the most important election we've had in our lifetimes. But in most ways, we know we're going to show up and do this again. We're going to get another opportunity. The bill can be amended. It can be repealed. It can be expanded on. Everything uh, has an opportunity for us to do it again. And so there is also at the dinner table the main course and some sides, right? And a lot of it is about what we prioritize at a given moment. Who's the hungriest? Like this balancing of needs that we do in the simple act of eating with each other is really what we're trying to do politically. And I think if we could see it that way, knowing that there are some constraints on this exercise, um, it it might help us proceed with a spirit, Mm -hmm. not of less urgency. I understand why urgency is needed and I respect that. But a spirit that knows uh, this is one dinner of many dinners. Right. And it's going to look different. And they don't, not every dinner has to look the exact same way because there are those, out, those constraints. Exactly. It shouldn't, right? It shouldn't. That's good. I like that. That's really helpful. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So, whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. One thing you do talk about is how connection comes from conflict, not from sameness. And so it really gives us a lot of hope, I think, in, you know, this maybe, I don't know if it is more divisive, um, but it definitely feels more divisive, at least as you look out um, amongst 
social media for sure. Um, but what is what hope might you give to us? You know, if we're thinking about okay, you know, I'm in conflict with uh, a neighbor or with you know someone who lives in my neighborhood that votes differently than I do and has the big flag and you know lots of brash things to say, or maybe even just you know in our own household. What does it look like then to begin to value that conflict in a way that feels healthy and actually helps us all sit down at that dinner table? Yeah, I would say that valuing the conflict does not mean that all things are equal and all opinions are correct and and valid and belong. They don't. Mm -hmm. It is more saying that people belong and uh, that there is something to be gained from having relationships with people, even when that conflict exists. And also mm. when it's possible, so when we're not in that situation of someone's identity being attacked or someone being abused or exploited, when it's possible, there is no trust like a trust where you are willing to say, I think you are completely wrong about that. And I love you anyway. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to keep talking to you about it. And I'm going to keep trusting you to hear me knowing that we're on really different pages. Um, and you can trust me to keep hearing you and respecting you and loving you through this. Our relationships, I think, are pretty shallow right now because yeah. um, the certainly the social media thread, but I see this in, you know, offline too. Um, there is such a bent toward constant affirmation and a bias toward being with people who provide that constant affirmation. And we need it. Look, I need it a lot. I told my husband this weekend, affirmation is my fuel. I want you to compliment my yard mowing, even if it's not as good as yours. That's what I need. (laughs) So we have to have that. Uh, But we also must have room to say, no, that that hurt me. The fact that you say this about immigration on Facebook seems incongruent with the person I know you to be. Help me understand that. Like those kinds of conversations where we're willing Mm -hmm. to dig into each other and, and trust that we can weather a little bit of tension and hurt is is a really beautiful thing that I think will help us be less lonely in the long term. How do you think the church can help provide spaces, third spaces for these sorts of dialogues and deep care? I would say, first of all, that the church, when asked a question like, how can we help, uh, often runs toward programming. Okay, so maybe we need a series of guest mm-hmm. speakers or Maybe we need to have a Wednesday night group that talks about this or or whatever. And I'm not so sure as well-intended and lovely as those things are. And as much as I enjoy speaking in those series, <laughs> to be honest with you, um, <laughs> right? Yeah. I'm not club, really right? sure that that's going to do it here. I would suggest that right now mm-hmm. with churches, um, we need to eat together more to stay with my dinner table metaphor. Mm-hmm. Um, we -hmm. need to think about ministry beyond worship. Um, I think we might even need to, and I know this is, you know, a very hot take. (laughs) Uh, I think we might need to dial back some of our focus on worship for a while, because I think that worship in so many churches Mm -hmm. subsumes ministry and subsumes the way that we have time and energy and resources to really go about caring for each other. You got to have some foundation for the relationships Mm -hmm. and the foundation for those relationships in many churches was like, if not broken, extremely damaged during the pandemic, even in churches that handled the pandemic in a way Mm -hmm. that everyone was pretty on board with. uh, It just took a hit to not be together regularly. And Mm so, uh, Rather than going right to six weeks on how the church can assist in a post-row dialogue, I would say, let's just like, Mm -hmm. let's have some dinners 
and some picnics this summer and some pool parties and really support friendship emerging among members of our congregation so that then we can build on that friendship and wade into these tougher subjects. Right. And, you know, I, and I think, um, my husband's a pastor, so we have conversations like this all the time, but you know, the, the challenge too, you know, in a post pandemic church life, right. Is also to, to figure out how do we re-knit those, those relationships? How do we, how do we make, you know, a, a wider space for people feel, can feel welcome again, but then also, you know, you know, as you're talking about the Sunday morning gathering, how do we make sure that even our worship experience isn't yet another consumer product, right? Um, you know, how do we help even if we're thinking mm-hmm. about dialing back on a Sunday morning sort of worship experience? A lot of it is just simply the problem, I think, is we've taken worship to mean, you know, an event that I attend uh, rather than something I'm participating in. It's really hard. I just sat on a committee mm-hmm. that was kind of exploring how do we reinvent worship or rebuild worship post-COVID? And it was that experience of bureaucracy for me, okay? It was like, mm-hmm. it was really difficult to make any sort of decisions in this committee. And groups of people mm-hmm. like that tend to have such a status quo bias. Mm-hmm. But it was also a beautiful experience because it helped me much better understand as someone who tends to be a bit of a disruptor. <laughs> It helped me much better understand (laughs) uh, the comfort that people find in our traditions and rituals, the intergenerational Mm -hmm. dynamics of our church. And so while I don't think that we solved anything, it worked on me. And I know that it worked on other people Mm -hmm. in the group. And I know that it's not the last chance that we have to talk about it. And I think maybe that's Mm -hmm. part of it, just facilitating small groups of people Uh, with as much diversity in those small groups as possible, especially age diversity. Mm -hmm. Um, Because we all have a lot of places in life where we really get to dig in with people in a 50, 60 year span of of life experiences. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm. I think maybe just letting people talk about it and talk through the dilemmas that are presented by worship. There are so many. And if you can take one step in the direction of Actually, this is a creative experience. Actually, we do make worship. It isn't just like a, it isn't a production. And that's hard because there is a lot of good writing out there about the production side of worship and how you can make it a more impactful experience for people to attend uh, that I've benefited from. But drawing people in to ask the hard questions, I think, is step one. It's frustrating. It takes way too long. I wish that it were different, (laughs) (laughs) but I think that that's it. That is, no, I think that's helpful. I mean, just even thinking about the ways in which we can diversify those sorts of conversations and then keep them in person and uh, be good listeners, right? Change happens so slow through those avenues, but that feels like that, you know, that those are the processes in the aggregate that then help us to be able to have harder conversations and not just demonize someone that thinks differently. And just develop some patience for each other. Uh, I think it is very surprising to people who value uh, the order in which we do things every Sunday. It's very difficult for people like that to hear someone like me say, yeah, but do we have to do it that way? Could we not, you know, could we not do it in this different space and do it like this or maybe change it every Sunday? It's shocking. And it's shocking for me to hear how deeply wedded some people mm-hmm. are to that flow. Yeah. And it's just good for us to hear that. And that's, 
that is like to your question about how churches can help with the political dynamic. If we can do better hearing each other out first on topics like that, that really aren't political, you know, that helps us build the skills that we need to go into Mm -hmm. the political realm. Mm -hmm. And the mutual trust. Yes. Why do you think politics has become kind of the fulcrum of some of our social dysfunction in our country? I wish I really understood that. Um, I mean, I think some of it is, un- is, I think some of it is that feminist writers have been telling us forever that the personal is political and that has become an unavoidable conclusion and always has been for some people, right? But for me, a 40 year old mm-hmm. white woman who is uh, socioeconomically privileged, it's like unavoidable now. So as for more and more people, the personal has become political. You understand why it's such a big deal. There's a lot of writing about the loss of other forms of identity, the loss of just, you know, bowling leagues and the kinds of things that Mm -hmm. uh, used to give people Mm -hmm. a sense of connection and purpose. There is a huge consumer element. Uh, People have made a lot of money off the industry of partisan polarization. And I think more fundamentally, mm-hmm. we just haven't been willing to stand up and say, let's let's stop this. And I mean, we as a collective and we as individuals. And it's hard mm-hmm. to say stop it because we don't want to discourage civic participation ever. One of our big problems is that we are so polarized and yet we still don't even mm-hmm. have anything close to 100 percent of people showing up to vote in elections. So how is it that we are fueled by this anger mm-hmm. Uh, But we're not even channeling it into the easiest, freest, least frequent forms of expression where we have power to do something about it. Uh, You know, that says to me that a lot of spaces in our lives are making us feel less than. And if we're just if we're feeling less than at work, less than in our family, unappreciated, Mm -hmm. unseen for whatever reason, um, Politics is a really easy place to work that stuff out because here I am talking about the people who make the rules. And if I feel like the rules aren't mm. working for me, being mad at the people who make the rules is, mm. is a good place to put some of that sadness. Yeah, that's thoughtful. It just strikes me, you know, I'm a mother of four, so yeah, you, you get a lot of that <laughs> that kickback, right, from from one's children. And so yeah, that's maybe, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe there's there's a sense in which maybe as a society where we have some maturing to do. I think that's right. And I also think that unlike children, uh, as adults, we don't really have a lot of guides on how to do that maturing. And especially to do mm-hmm. collective maturing. That's hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's mm-hmm. kind of new because for most of our history, mm-hmm. Working together, knitting together has just been about pure survival. There are these external forces mm-hmm. that just require it. And we've had a period of decades here where life's pretty easy, especially in the, the U.S., mm-hmm. Canada, um, most of Europe, much of the world. Life's pretty easy. Survival isn't on the table every single day. And so mm-hmm. it's easier to fight with each other about these conflicts and not have anything that forces us to come together. I wonder mm-hmm. whether... The earth itself is going to require us to band together again for survival. But mm-hmm. I would love for us to work on our collective maturing without that kind of um, requirement from nature. Right. Yes. 
here, here, for sure. It, that would help us, I think. Actually, if we had some muscle development about around resilience uh, and community building, then we'd be in a mm -hmm. lot of better situation if that, right? If we are forced to the brink at that point. You know, what do you recommend as a starting place? Say someone is just, you know, feels like they can't comment, they don't want to comment on Facebook because that's just, you know, a dumpster fire. They, you know, they don't, they don't feel like they have a voice. Um, maybe it feels super intimidating to show up to the school board meeting. What's like a few like easy places to start to, you know, where the, they want to have good conversations. They want to feel hopeful about the state of American politics. Uh, they want to be hopeful about where the church is going. I think, you know, part of it, like you said, is probably just eating together. But maybe what are a few things? Okay, so let's say you, you've eaten together over the summer. You're trying to diversify your friendships. You're trying to pay attention. Um, what are some practical things people might do to begin to develop like that next step um, of community building or even political communal community building? Well, I agree with them about Facebook. I would not start commenting on Facebook. I think that's just fine. Yep. So the first thing I would say is just develop uh, a news habit that feels good to you. Mm. And what Sarah mm -hmm. and I usually recommend mm. is finding a single source that you seek out every single day. The nightly news worked really well for a long time and still could work well if we allowed it. Mm -hmm. um, reading an email newsletter every day that aggregates the headlines. Maybe it's a podcast, whatever. One source that you mm -hmm. go to every day. Do not allow your news to be delivered to you via algorithm. Seek it out and seek it out consistently mm -hmm. so that you can mm -hmm. see the trajectory of the news over time. Mm -hmm. Everything feels a little bit more stable when you're looking at it every single day instead of waiting for a headline news alert mm -hmm. to come to you. And even when it doesn't feel stable, because mm -hmm. some days okay. the one source tells you that things that are pretty hard even then, you're going to have more context for what's going on. You don't have to be an expert, but just be aware. I promise that if you engage with one source every day, mm -hmm. Monday through Friday, you're going to know more than the vast majority of people around you about what's happening in the world. The second thing mm -hmm. I would say is look in the spaces where you already are. We usually feel like we have to go somewhere new if we're trying to work on ourselves in any way. Look in the spaces mm -hmm. where you already are, the spaces where you already have influence, and consider what questions you're willing to bring into those spaces. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of them in the book. Um, if you're on a board, just consider whether at the next board meeting, if something comes up that has some, some tension attached to it, uh, if you're willing to be a person who says, there seems to be a lot of tension around this issue, I wonder why. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, if you're willing to just call out, wow, it's feeling feeling a little tense in here right now. Mm -hmm. If you're in church and something kind of gets awkward, if you're willing to just say, I wonder why this feels awkward to us. Mm -hmm. uh, that is how I think we build that emotional maturity, that cultural mm -hmm. resilience that we're looking for, being willing to face it. And then I think the next thing is to ask, where are my skills, talents, gifts, interests tugging at me? Because usually I have a nudge when I when it's time for me to act on something. So an example um, that that happened after we wrote the book is that our superintendent uh, during the Omicron wave sent out an email that said, I really want to keep school open. I need some help and I don't need money and I don't need nice notes. I need adult bodies to help us yeah. keep the schools open. Yeah. And so Sarah and I both applied to be substitute teachers and we go in when we can and substitute. It is inconvenient. 
It is not my favorite thing. Um, it is a long day <laughs> full of yeah. lots of noise. I always feel like sensory overwhelm when uh-huh. I'm in a school building, uh-huh. but it is something that I can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I believe in lending my hands and feet to the things that I can do that make a difference. And I offer that example because it's one where I'm not taking political power over anyone, right? I'm just showing up to say, I too would like for school to be open. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I am a community member and no one else is coming to do this, if not me. And Mm -hmm. and I'm able and so Mm -hmm. I'm willing. Mm -hmm. I think if we kind of go, go through those steps, I'm educating myself every day. I'm willing to ask more questions and I'm willing to show up with my body when it's called for makes a huge difference. Mm, that's great. Thank you for making that very practical and helping us get like some concrete steps. Really appreciate it. So tell us um, your laundry routine. So the reason I asked this question um, is because all of these big things matter, but like you're saying, they also work themselves out right in the normal routines and the material reality of our lives. So what does your laundry routine look like, Beth? It's in transition right now because I have daughters who are 11 and 7, and my laundry routine used to be hate laundry, put it off Mm -hmm. as long as possible, have a full day of all the laundry, be mad at everyone in my house for having worn clothes. And (laughs) uh, now that both of my daughters are uh, big and mature enough to carry their own laundry down the stairs (laughs) and to put it away themselves, that's what we're working on. And so I am trying to have a different day for each family member to access the washer dryer and to teach my kiddos how to do it themselves. And it is diminishing my hatred for laundry. And it is certainly uh, diminishing my frustration that other people in my house have to wear clothes. Uh, And I also find that now my girls are seeing like, oh, if I wear this for five minutes and take it off, I will not like myself later for having done that. (laughs) I need to put it back in the drawer, back in the closet. (laughs) Yes. That's good. I love it. You know, I mean, even the, like our laundry habits help us, right, to belong to each other. Absolutely. Great. And to see, like, I have a role to contribute here. Mm-hmm. It's, it mm-hmm. is a small thing, but the small thing of doing my own laundry takes enormous time pressure off mom and dad, but also mm-hmm. emotional pressure off mom and dad. Like, just this mm-hmm. little bit that I contribute opens up an opportunity for someone else. And I truly believe that about our communities. Mm. Thank you so much. It's been so fun to chat with you. Thank you for your wisdom and just practical advice. Um, You can all go grab a copy of the book. It's called Now What? How to Move Forward When We're Divided about basically everything. And you can get all the links in the show notes. So thanks for being here with us, Beth. Thank you for having me, Ashley. Thank you for reading the book and for sharing it with your listeners and for all that you do to ask questions about how the church can support us better in this time. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks, friends, so much for listening. If you haven't yet listened to Pantsuit Politics, I would encourage you to hit that link in the show notes and take a listen to their conversations. You can also pick up a copy of Sarah and Beth's book, Now What?, at the link in the show notes. I always love to leave my listeners with one small step as we begin to move forward into the ordinary habits of our days. In the book, Now What?, The author's right. The goal is not and has never been to have one grace-filled conversation dust off our hands and say, fixed it. We strengthen connection, not by agreeing or resolving tension. Connection is the goal because connection is the reality and conversation, not to solve conflict, but to recognize that connection can get us closer. In other words, 
we can't simply think of our problems as math equations to be solved. One and done, it's finished, and the checkbox is ticked off. So what do we do? What do we move forward? Well, as one small step, I'm going to actually take a page out of another book by another author. Andy Crouch, in his most recent book, is The Life We're Looking For, talks about a practice he did one day as he was walking from terminals in the airport and having to wait a long time. He needed to get some exercise, and he also really was thinking, how do we feel so disconnected? And so what he chose to do is, as he was walking along the airport terminal, is to simply pay attention, to look someone in the eye, and to say the word image bearer in his head. It was a spiritual practice that actually helped him to begin to see people, not as objects or people in his way from one place to another, but as bearers of God's divine image. So I would encourage you, whether it's in your home, your workplace, when you're out on a walk, to simply pay attention to the people around you, to say the word image bearer. It's one practical step along with so many others that Beth mentioned, like eating together or asking good questions or figuring out how you in your body can show up to your particular place. But it might just be a quick practice that you can used to reorient the way in which you move about in the world, to begin to reestablish the full humanity of people, even people that we might disagree with. Thanks, friends, for being here. Would you go ahead and share this episode with a friend? And we would love it if you took just two seconds to rate and review the Finding Holy podcast on iTunes. It's a great way to stay connected and for other people to find these great conversations as well. So remember friends, big things matter, but so does your laundry. 